Welcome to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. This is a podcast that will make you want to get outdoors and will give you some great ideas as a sport parent, athlete, or coach. Born in the beautiful mountain town of Steamboat Springs, Colorado, the Winter Sports Club was founded over a century ago and now serves a majority of kids in our community and has produced more Winter Olympians than any other club in North America. There are secrets and great stories to share as we play year-round in these mountains we call home. Our calling is to develop complete athletes on and off the mountain by cultivating a passion for the outdoors and a love of sports at all levels. Stay tuned to hear from Olympians, athletes of all ages, coaches, experts, and people who are doing amazing things to make an impact in our community and in their sport. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former professional triathlete who finally discovered the joys of skiing in my late 40s when I moved to Steamboat Springs with my family. We immediately discovered the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club, and it's become a huge part of our lives as my husband, Tim DeBoom, is a ski and bike coach, and my daughter, Wilder, has found happiness, friendship, and joy through skiing, jumping, riding, and more. I am thrilled to bring the positive energy of the Winter Sports Club to people all over the world. Thanks for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, friends. I am here today with Mark Williams, one of the world's leading sports scientists who spent his career researching and analyzing elite athletes. He has written countless publications and books on the topics of exercise, sports science, psychology, and medicine, and probably more I've missed. Uh, I had the honor today of sitting in on a talk he did where he presented his findings about how elite athletes are made to a range of coaches in steamboats so they could take that information and make more elite athletes. Mark, I can't wait to bring this discussion to a wider audience. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure. It's uh, great to be here in such a beautiful part of the world. It is a beautiful part of the world, but we're not bringing the weather today. No, it (laughs) reminds me I was actually um, brought up in North Wales in the United Kingdom, and uh, this kind of weather is pretty standard during uh, my upbringing. All right. It's grey, damp, and miserable. Oh, oh, that's such a (laughs) bummer. But, um, you know, we can't control everything in this world. We're going to do the best we can to to shape and, and maybe controls the wrong word, but to help help form the futures of some young athletes. Um, so here's here. Let's get a little more about your background, actually, before we really get going into the topic of how elite athletes are made and all the other rabbit holes we're going to chase. Um, you focus in your career on sports research. Mm-hmm. How did you come to into this crazy field? Well, like many kids, I had a big passion for sport growing up. Uh, Growing up in the UK, I mean, football, soccer is, of course, the most popular sport. So um, I spent a lot of my youth playing soccer and then uh, ended up actually playing youth international soccer for for Wales. Played for Wales under 18 when I was 15 and then played 18 times over a three-year period. And then I had an association with them, uh, a professional club in the UK for a while as well, for about six years off and on. And then I played semi-professional soccer until my early 30s. So um, sport was always a strong passion. And 
I also did quite well at school. So um, it was around the mid-80s, actually, that sports science, sport and exercise science as an ac academic discipline was being launched in the UK. So I thought, you know, I didn't have any particular topic I wanted to study, and I thought, why not study sport? So um, I, uh, I did a sport and exercise science degree uh, and was one of the first cohorts uh, in that discipline area in the UK in the late 1980s. And actually, it's become such a popular area since that sport and exercise science is now the most popular undergraduate degree in the UK. And rightly or wrongly, more people do sport and exercise science as an undergraduate degree than maths, physics, and chemistry together. Oh. So, uh, so it was a combined passion between doing well at school and being interested in sport that drove me into that area. And so when you say you were playing semi-professional soccer, mm -hmm. were you also a student at that time pursuing this degree? Yes, I, I, I played um, semi-professional soccer from my late teens right the way through to my early 30s, actually. And... Uh, would probably love to be still playing today if that's, it wasn't for injury and age catching up with me. But uh, yeah, I played sort of just below the, the professional tiers in England and in Wales. Actually, I played in the National League of Wales for four or five years and uh, very much enjoyed it. So, you know, you obviously then did sport at a very high level. You were a very elite athlete growing up um, and you decided to pursue a career it basically to learn more about this thing that you organically had grown up with. I, I didn't even write this question down because it just came to me, but do you use your own personal background in sport when you're thinking about the research that you want to put forward? Yes. I mean, I think so. I mean, um, whilst I played, I, I also coached. In fact, uh, my first experience of coming to the U.S., was uh, as an 18-year-old student, I used to come and coach soccer here uh, for the summer. And I did that for a number of years. Uh, and then actually, once I stopped playing, I did um, uh, coach and manage at the National League level in Wales for a number of years. So I think having an understanding of sport as an athlete and as a coach has certainly sort of, I, I hope so anyway, helped me interact better with athletes and coaches, uh, perhaps get a better understanding of, of the kind of support and guidance that coaches and athletes find helpful. So it certainly helps being able to to relate. And uh, and I think that is not just solely in, in soccer either. I think it's across sports. I mean, there are a lot of commonalities and cultures and the way that people communicate and interact uh, between athletes and coaches across a wide variety of different sports. So I think that's been helpful to me. Yeah. And it's also helped my science, to be honest, as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, earlier before we started this interview, you shared with me that you have kids yourself. Mm -hmm. And do you, is it hard for you not to apply your, your work and your research and your findings on your own children? No, I never struggled with that, actually. I mean, some people say that men are better at compartmentalizing things, I guess, to, <laughs> might to be some true. degrees. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I have three boys, 28, 25, and 15. And uh, I certainly didn't discourage them from participating in sport, and they obviously did and still do. But I didn't push them too strongly either. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's important that kids make their own decisions about what interests them and where they want to you know, where their passion lies. 
Um, oh, yeah. But I certainly supported them, but didn't push them, so to speak. Well, this actually leads perfectly into one of the topics that I wanted to hit on today. Um, m- most of our listeners, not all, but most, are parents of kids that are at different ages in their athlete journey. And um, we often don't know how hard to push our children, when to push, when to pull back. And I know you've done some research and written about a concept called helicopter parenting. Maybe. I wondered if you could share first for those people who don't know what that means, you know, what it is and uh, how, you know, how we can benefit from maybe not helicopter parenting our kids. Yeah, the concept of helicopter parenting, I guess, is is parents being uh, too protective of their children, perhaps pushing them too strongly into certain activities as well. I mean, I guess that's that's a natural feeling to want to do that as a parent. Um, and there's some positives to that. But at the same time, I guess, you know, children have got to become their own person uh, to have their own level of independence and to engage in trial and error learning. Because if they're always being told what to do and uh, and they're succeeding at everything, then maybe they're not learning the lessons then of how to deal with uh, failures in life. Because, you know, invariably... Nothing's ever smooth flowing through life and and dealing with the ups and the downs are, are both equally important. So um, I think it's getting the right balance there between being supportive and encouraging whilst at the same time allowing the child to have some freedom and choice to explore the activities and, for instance, the sports that they may be passionate and, uh, and actually interested about. And uh, in some ways, I know during my talk earlier on today, we spoke about, you know, this constant debate around specialization and diversification. And uh, I, I think the child should have a big say in that particular process as well. I mean, for me, I was so obsessed with soccer at an early age and still having to a larger degree that that's all I ever wanted to do. And I did participate in other sports, but um, I didn't want to be pushed into those sports. You know, I think it was right that they'd be my choice in terms of whether they wanted to take them up or not. So yes, there's a difficult balance there for parents in terms of being supportive, uh, but at the same time, not being too prescriptive and too hands-on and giving children the opportunity to grow and develop as well. Well, and I definitely, we're going to come back to diversification versus specialization. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I, I did take away from your talk today was the idea of Creating an environment for a kid to get better by pushing their limits, which will cause them to fail more, which parents hate to see. So Mm -hmm. we're going to try to jump in and save them from some of that failure versus creating an environment where they're constantly overperforming. So their confidence is really high, but then they're not learning as much. I forget what we called that. Can we talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I think we spoke about maintenance practice, which is the concept of continuing to practice skills that you're already good at, as opposed to um, growth training, um, where in essence you are stressing the system or working at uh, a level of difficulty that challenges the system to adapt and develop. And um, it's a difficult balance, yes, if, if performance is going well, and uh, but you're still repeating the same skills in that way, then learning is not going to be high, of course. So therefore, the emphasis is on performance. But ultimately, 
you know, the human system adapts uh, through stress and the human system demonstrates considerable plasticity and adaptability. So therefore, we need to be able to challenge the system uh, so that there is some element of growth there. I mean, in similar ways, actually, the concept is not too dissimilar from developing uh, a muscle, is it? I mean, to some degree, in order, in order to grow bigger muscles, then you need to stress the system. Uh, you need to have some element of um, repetition of that exercise. And of course, you need rest and recovery. And actually, ironically, we learn more during sleep than we do during actual practice. So the process of consolidation in terms of neural structures in the brain are not too dissimilar, actually, from the way that we grow bigger muscles. That I mean, there's so much to dissect here. And I'm sitting here thinking, gosh, which way do we want to take this incredible conversation? Um, I want to come back to the high performance conversation and kind of take us back to ground zero when kids enter sport. And I do want to talk a little bit about the concept of nature versus nurture. I know you get hit with this all the time, but is there really science that shows that certain kids are genetically predisposed to be champions more than other kids? Um, I just, you know, in many ways, it's not a, a dichotomy, is it? It's a continuum at some level in the sense that, I mean, genes play an important role in the development of elite athletes, but then at the same time, environment is also crucial. And if you look at um, elite soccer players or elite skiers, for instance, then the evidence suggests that they're accumulating, you know, between seven and 10,000 hours in practice uh, before the age of 18, 19. And, uh, and consequently, no matter what their genes, they still have to have the right environment, the right motivation, the right passion to engage in sport to that extent. So what I would probably say in a phrase that I've used quite often actually is the, the concept that I think far more people have the genes to be elite than actually do become elite. Uh, so therefore, the process of becoming elite yes, is partly due to those genes, but my argument would be that it's more due to environment uh, and the culture surrounding the development of elite athletes and, of course, the passion and interest of the athlete to progress on that journey. And it is a very long journey with lots of speed bumps yes. uh, along the way. Well, think about yourself. You said when you were a little kid, you became obsessed with soccer. Mm -hmm. And maybe was there any like genetic reason that that should have become your sport? Or was it just if you had to step back and say, why did I become so good at this? Was it because you just worked harder than everybody else? Um, I think actually, to be honest, I was quite a good athlete as, as a youngster. So for instance, I ran a hundred meters in 11.5 seconds when I was 15. So, um, I was a good athlete, but when I look back at it now, actually, uh, I didn't spend enough time practicing, uh, in the right way to develop the skills that were needed. And I probably didn't have some of those psychological skills then that I probably have more so now. Yes, I had the passion, the interest, but did I have the drive, the grit, the mental toughness, the perfectionist strivings? 
that I think are important in elite athletes? No. I think I've had them actually in regards to my academic career. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I'd sometimes say, and I suspect many of us would say this in the sense that I'd, I'd love to go back in time now and be that 15-year-old athlete who was playing youth international soccer at the time uh, with some of the psychological characteristics that I have now. Then I think I might have had a better chance perhaps of uh, having a sustained career at the professional level in the sport. I mean, I think that's what makes sport just so amazing, but also such a tragedy at times is that it isn't just one factor. You can be the greatest physical specimen on the planet, but if you're not tough, if you don't have a hard work ethic, if you don't have tenacity, all of those things that you just mentioned, like you're just not going to quite get there. No. And there are some things that obviously we have less control over perhaps as well, like the propensity to get injured and not. And I, I suffered a lot with injuries at probably a key stage of development. So, um, you know, they're things that are less under our control. And I probably suspect there are some genetic factors that influence mm. that as well. Well, yeah. And, you know, could you now look back and use what you learned as an athlete getting injured to say, oh, yeah, this is how you can avoid going down the path I was on? And now a quick break to hear from our show sponsor, Honey Stinger. Honey Stinger produces fuel for all levels of athletes using delicious honey and organic ingredients. Not only is honey rich in antioxidants, but it's also easily digested and absorbed quickly into the system to help you prepare, perform, and recover. Personally, if energy products don't taste great, I won't eat them, and I bet you agree with me. That's why I love everything Honey Stinger offers because their products are delicious. You don't even realize you're getting fueled because it just tastes like you're eating dessert. And I have never met someone who doesn't love dessert any time of day. Discover what the buzz is all about on HoneyStinger.com. Get this. Use this code SSWSC podcast for 20% off organic waffles, chews, gels, bars, and hydration to help you sweeten the burn. I'm going to repeat that for you because it's such a great deal. Get going over to HoneyStinger.com and use the code SSWSC podcast for 20% off. And now back to the show. I think, you know, really at, at the time things have changed a lot on there. I remember in those times, Mike, I was just enjoying playing. I didn't think too much about how do I optimize practice time? How do I engage in the right type of practice? What skills do I need to develop in order to progress to that next level? And ironically, as a scientist, as a coach, then I would think that about my own athletes that I'm working with at the moment in terms of, you know, what are their strengths and weaknesses? How do we need to develop practice training programs to work on those weaknesses? And um, another thing that didn't help me too much either, actually, is, is I was brought up in a very rural part of the UK, North Wales. So, um, and of course, it was a very different sport in the 80s soccer to what it is now, given the amount of investment since the Premier League was launched in the early 90s and the money that these clubs are spending now on sports science, sports medicine support, uh, recruitment, selection, coaching. So there weren't academies in my day 
Uh, and even if there was, you know, there certainly wasn't going to be one in a very rural part of North Wales in a town with a population of, of 10,000. So um, and one of the things I spoke about in my talk today actually highlights the fact that there is considerable luck in becoming an elite athlete as well, or serendipity, if you like. So some of the factors that influence your chances of success include you know, the role of family, parents and custodians and guardians in terms of, you know, they're normally the ones that introduce you to sport. They obviously have to invest often considerable time and resources to take children to those sports. So it helps to be born into, you know, a family that is very pro-sport, uh, whether it's a ski family or a soccer family. Uh, I think having siblings is helpful. I mean, there is now research to suggest that you are 1.2 times more likely to be an elite athlete if you have an older sibling. I guess older siblings probably introduce you to to the sport at an earlier age than if you didn't have an older sibling. And often you get to playing with those older siblings so that you can learn skills at an accelerated rate. And I guess those older siblings also act as mentors in terms of you know giving you information. So that helps. Uh, where you're born, of course, helps a great deal. Um, I mean, your chances of being an elite skier are much lower, I guess, if you're born in the UK than if you're born in Steamboat Springs. Uh, in fact, over lunch today, I believe 50% of the children living in Steamboat Springs are a member of the ski club, <laughs> yes. which is, you know, quite quite phenomenal. Whereas, I guess, in parts of the UK, then, yeah, probably 50% of the kids are maybe members of the local football soccer club. So, where you're born has a significant impact on the opportunity you have to participate in certain sports, on the support structures that are available, on the level of competition, and on access to elite level coaches. Uh, and there's even other factors like, for instance, where, sorry, not where you're born, but when you're born also as well. Uh, the relative age effect is this notion that um, if you're born in the first three months of the selection year for a particular sport, then you're far more likely of becoming an elite athlete than if you're born in the final quarter of the selection year. And this is because, of course, scouts and coaches have the propensity to select athletes that are bigger and stronger at an early age. Uh, so there is a biased selection process. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I remember reading an article about hockey players in Canada that was about this exact topic. And, uh, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Like, and that parents could potentially, if they wanted to get their kids on the right track, try to make that happen. Oh yes, gosh. for sure. Talk about helicopter parenting before they're even born. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, and that's across many sports. I mean, the, the evidence is there also in skiing, in the sense that, you know, far more elite skiers are born in the first quarter. Uh, in fact, most sports, actually. I think the only U.S. sport that is has not been touched by the relative age effect, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, is American football. Uh, and that is, I think, because selection into elite training programs occurs after 14 years of age. So most people are at puberty at that age and are already at full stature. So, you know, you don't get that bias. I mean, having said that, if, um, if you are, should I say, unfortunate to be born in the first quarter, uh, of the selection here for whatever sport, I mean, that need not necessarily be the end of the road. 
um, there is evidence to suggest that people who are disadvantaged can compensate by spending more time in practice uh, to compensate for those skills. And actually, there is, there is some evidence now in, in what's called um, the underdog effect, that whilst your chances of being uh, selected for an elite training program are much higher if you're born in the first quarter, uh, rather paradoxically, your chances of becoming an elite athlete or a super elite athlete, like an all-star player, are much higher if you're born in the final quarter. And I suspect the argument for that is that if you're born in the first quarter, then you're probably able to get away with the physical advantages that you have early on. So you don't spend enough time focusing on, let's say, technical and tactical skills. Whereas in contrast, of course, if you're not the biggest and strongest in the group, then you've got to find a way to, to keep going. So you maybe spend more time focusing on your technical and tactical skills so that post-puberty, when you no longer have a physical disadvantage, you're able to, to benefit from the increased time spent in developing technical and tactical skills early on. That is so fascinating. Okay, so my daughter's got her work cut out for her. She was born on December 30th. Okay. Usually January 1. But, you know, she's going to be tenacious then because she's just going to have to be scrappy. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the selection is very from sports to sport. In the UK for football soccer, it's, the, it's um, September is the first month. And actually 50%, almost 50% of the players in the Premier League academies, youth academies, are born in the first quarter. Wow. Only 10% are born in the final quarter. Gosh. Uh, interestingly, though, the relative age effect also exists in education. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Those born uh, in the UK, it's August. Those born in August typically get uh, lower exam scores than those born in September. I feel like I'm talking to an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have so much knowledge. Um, I want to move in then. So we we kind of, we really dissected nature versus nurture a bit here and, and many other rabbit holes um, really into <laughs> it. I want to move into the concept of diversification versus specialization, because to me, that's sort of the next thing. So kids start in a sport, they show interest, they might show proclivity to the sport. Then then you get excited. Say they show some promise and mm -hmm. you go, oh, well, we should quit everything else. And I'm just going to share a little personal story. Um, I was a swimmer growing up at a very high level. But I was also a really good runner. I was a state-level runner, and I played every other sport that was out there. But swimming was the one I did year-round. So by the time I was 16, I qualified for Olympic trials and was one of the top five swimmers in the country in my age. And it was like, okay, wow, well, you did that. So now that must mean you should quit everything else because this is clearly going to be your path. Like, you might make the Olympics. So I did. I quit everything else. And lo and behold, a few more years go by and I never got any faster. Hmm. And I look back on that now and I think, why did I quit everything else right at that time in my life? Um, when puberty was coming on strong, another topic we're going to get to and other things when I didn't know if it was going to work or not. So my question is, what advice do you have for parents of kids who are showing promise or excitement in a sport? Should, you know, should you encourage them to continue doing other sports throughout their formative years or 
you know, stop and mm-hmm. focus. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there are some potential disadvantages with early specialization, of course, uh, notionally around um, overuse injuries and burnout. Um, a lot of people, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that highlights the fact that uh, some skills may transfer transfer across sports. So you'll often hear an elite athlete say, well, you know, while I was growing up, I played in this sport and this has helped me become a super athlete in another sport. But actually the scientific evidence on transfer is not particularly strong at all. Um, the general consensus is that clearly the closer two sports are to each other, the more likely there will be transfer. But beyond that, we actually don't know specifically what transfers. And, and of course, the notion between specialization and diversification is not dichotomous, it's a continuum. So then the question arises, well, what is diversification? If I play soccer for 10 hours a week and I play tennis for one hour a week and play golf for one hour a week, is that diversification? Or do I have to participate in five sports three hours a week for that to be diversification? So it's a continuum in terms of levels of diversification. Um, Other benefits to diversification, I guess, is that, you know, not many kids reach the truly elite level. And uh, ultimately, most kids participate in sport for physical activity and health benefits. So I guess if you learn a lot of sports, then you can participate in a lot of sports throughout adulthood and into older age. Against those positives, of course, the the downside is that in some sports, um, the professionalism of those sports is such that certainly early engagement is the norm, if not necessarily specialization. So specialization is the process that you might engage in one sport and one sport only. Uh, And there are some sports that fit that bracket, gymnastics being one. I think swimming, there's a bit of evidence for swimming as well, fitting into that category. Early engagement is the fact that you engage early in a sport, spend a lot of hours in that sport, but you don't necessarily not engage in other sports. And actually two sports that fit the early engagement pathway are skiing and soccer, in the sense that um, elite skiers typically begin engaging in the sport at around two and a half years of age. They're in coach-led instruction by five, often competing by seven. In soccer, kids start a little bit later, actually, typically around four and a half years of age. Uh, but they can be in formal structured training environments by age six. Um, as I said before, elite skiers and elite soccer players probably do accumulate somewhere between, say, seven and 10,000 hours of practice by their late teens. So you can see it's an early engagement and they spend a lot of time in those sports. But then... Uh, elite skiers also accumulate a lot of hours in other sports as well. And certainly in their, um, you know, between the age of maybe eight and 14, uh, they are sampling a lot of other sports as well. And that's partly, of course, because the sport is seasonal. Uh, Soccer players also sample other sports, but far less so. So um, for elite soccer players, typically 95% of the time, they're participating in soccer, and 5% of the time they may participate in other sports. Uh, For elite skiers, actually, it's more balanced in the sense that um, I think when we looked at a sample of 600 elite academy skiers across the US and looked at their sort of um, developmental history profiles in the sport, 
As I said, they typically accumulated around 7,500 hours in ski-led activity by age 18, but they'd also accumulated sort of four or 5,000 hours of practice in other sports, some of them participating in five or six other sports. What we don't know for certain, of course, is whether participation in those other sports was actually helpful in regards to the development of expertise in the target sport. We That's what know. makes this so hard, because we don't have a good answer. <laughs> no, 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 we don't actually. And um, uh, I've just published a popular science book a couple of years ago called The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. And there is a chapter in it on specialization versus diversification. And we do present so my co-author, Tim Wigmore, who's a journalist for the Daily Telegraph in the UK. So we present um, the counter-arguments pro and for specialization against diversification and also also talk about the early engagement pathways. And actually, we, we end the chapter with the sentence, it depends, exclamation mark, <laughs> in terms of whether you should specialize or, or, or diversify. I mean, um, it really does depend on the sport. Well, I mean, the, the, the downside is... Just another point to add the downside, I guess, of engaging in a wide variety of different sports, potentially, is will you end up with what may be deemed as a practice deficit in your target sport? So if some people are in engaging early in the sport, like for instance, in the UK, some of the Premier League Academy soccer players by age 9 and 10 have accumulated 3,000 hours in practice. So if you specialize later and you're diversifying more and you've only accumulated say 1500 hours in soccer by age nine then are you going to be able to make up that practice deficit in a sport that is highly dependent on technical and tactical ability probably well, not to I'm just not without a question well yeah i mean not without avoiding overuse injuries and burnout which is what you mentioned Yes. So it's yeah. like a little, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, is there any benefit to kids having to go through something like burnout at a certain age? I mean, I look at that as like such a negative thing. I know I hit burnout at various times. I'm not sure maybe you did as well. But is there a benefit to kids having to learn what that feels like, come through the other side and say, no, I still love this sport. And now I know what that feels like so I can avoid it in the future. That's, a, that's an, an interesting question. I mean, I don't know specifically around burnout per se. I mean, I guess I'm probably thinking the general tendency that it's something to avoid. But having said that, um, coping with stressors of various stages of development is, I think, a normal part of that particular journey. So whether you, you call them speed bumps as an analogy on the way, uh, you know, little hiccups that slow you down a little bit, or um, rock, a rocky road, per se, uh, you know, potholes in the road that cause a problem. I mean, they're inevitable. And, um, you know, ultimately the issue is, is you have to learn to become resilient and to develop coping skills and mental toughness skills that allow you to overcome those obstacles and potentially to try and look at failure, perhaps, as an opportunity for growth. And... Um, you know, I suspect that uh, a, a lot of the, the elite athletes will articulate the fact that the journey is never smooth and how you deal with those problems and difficulties along the way is an important part around the process of becoming an elite athlete. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree with that. Um, you've got to get knocked down and learn how to get back up. If you just mm. get up all the time, <laughs> there's there's not a lot of uh, once you're finally knocked down, you're you're just going to stay down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what we probably know less about actually is whether elite athletes come into the sport with sort of some of these psychological characteristics that are important in the first instant. And this is the nature-nurture argument again. Yep. Or, uh, you know, to what extent these elite performers develop these psychological skills through a result of prolonged engagement in the sport. Uh, and to what extent the environment and coaches, for instance, and significant others play a key role in developing some of those psychological characteristics. Mm-hmm. I think generally, that I could probably say the research evidence suggests that uh, our psychological characteristics are somewhat genetically predetermined, maybe in the order of, sort of 30 to 50% of them. But also, clearly, there's significant scope there for those psychological characteristics to be developed over time. And some of them will occur naturally. And of course, sports psychology as an applied field is growing quite markedly. And there's a lot of sports psychologists out there who, you know, help athletes develop these kinds of skills that are important on that journey. Yes. Oh, for sure. Um, and and the next subject I want to talk about is a time when we probably need to bring the sports psychologist in. So we here we go. We're parents. Our kids are getting thrown into sports. Then they start to show excitement and interest. They're 10, 11, 12. And they start to like, this sport is my life, you know, and they're just really getting into it. And then all of a sudden, puberty hits, Right. I mentioned it with my own journey. Physically, my body changed, like everything changes. How do we keep our kids excited about sport when they may plateau during this time? They're going through crazy emotional changes and things like that. How do you keep them going when when things kind of start going awry? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a difficult question. Probably outside of my remit, somewhat to some degree. <laughs> you mean you haven't studied <laughs> puberty? Not, not so much. No, not so much, and not so much mental health issues either. I mean, um, you know, clearly you can see in elite sport some of these Premier League academies are now taking kids on at five, six years of age, and and the sport and the club becomes their life for five or six years, and then potentially at ten years of age, the club turns around to them and say sorry, we're not going to move you up to the next year group, so we're going to let you go. And, um, you know, I, I've heard some real horror stories around that particular issue. You know, how do you cope with that? Not just as a child, but also as a parent. Yeah. You know, where you're so engrossed in that in that particular culture. I think there's increasing awareness of mental health issues in sport. Uh, and uh, And I think we know more about those kinds of issues now than we did a couple of decades ago. I mean, I guess if you went back to our youth, it probably wasn't something you spoke about, was it? To some degree, no. not openly anyway. And it's nice to see so many elite athletes maybe share some of their experience of those particular issues at this point. Uh, puberty, I, I know less about. I'm not sure you could necessarily describe that as a mental health issue, but clearly, yeah, there are there are challenges <laughs> involved around that particular maybe period Maybe for of the time. parents, it's a mental health issue. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, particularly, of course, you know, kids can grow quite markedly around puberty, what they call the peak height velocity growth period. You know, they can grow up to um, five or six inches in a year. 
which uh, has a significant everything impact off. on their self-perception. <laughs> Plus, of course, their coordination. Yeah, their balance. And, and their, all, all those kinds of yeah. stuff. But I mean, it's a little bit outside of my scope. No, I get it. Um, I get it. I just but, threw it out uh, there. It's an interesting area. It is. And let's put it down for your next you know, round <laughs> of research. <laughs> I mean, I will say just taking some of the emphasis off of performance and maybe focusing more on the learning, which is something that you've done a lot of study on, could potentially help them, you know, navigate that tricky time because they don't feel the pressure, you know? Yes, I guess I guess we're a society that is driven by short-term performance more than long-term learning and adaptation, I guess. There's some nice little work actually, and it's discussed in the book as well, talking about communities of learning where... Um, you know, athletes who are at elite training academies or in specialized sports schools have this opportunity to share uh, common issues and common problems and how they can provide a support network for each other during different stages of, of development. And I think in a, in a big ski club like Steamboat here, then I think there's potential, potentially a lot of scope for that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where these kids can help support each other during difficult times of totally. development. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, that's one of the greatest, you know, benefits of getting involved in sport is the community. Um, I wanted to ask, I don't know if you've done any research on this. I assume you have because I did see a little bit of it today. Do males and females develop at a different rate at different ages and respond differently to the different training tactics? You know, is there any benefit to splitting males and females in their training? or to combining males and females? Like, what's the thought process there? Hmm. I mean, again, it's not my... You're into sort of biology, biological sciences here to some degree. It's not a, an area that I have significant expertise in. I mean, the general consensus, I guess, is that pre-puberty, there is strong evidence that it's okay for kids to, to um, you know, males and females to participate together in sport. I mean, that's the same. Is the case in soccer, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, but post-puberty, obviously, there are significant uh, physical differences between males and females, and then it becomes harder to keep the, the two sports together, sorry, the two genders together during sport. I mean, um, to some degree, I'll share an example from, from soccer, because it's quite interesting in the sense that, you know, there's, there is still the vast majority of research in the sport and exercise sciences is on male athletes. But increasingly, you know, there is more research work on female athletes and elite female athletes. And we've been doing a lot of work, for instance, on the development pathways of elite female soccer players. And in fact, we had access to the US national team and uh, to also several other national teams, female teams across the world. And we looked at their developmental history profiles. And uh, increasingly so, you know, as the women's game is becoming more professional and more systematic, the development pathways for males and female players are now becoming very similar. So, you know, female players are also engaging at four or five years of age. Uh, you know, they're joining elite training academies and they're accumulating also uh, words of six and 7,000 hours. Um, I think the only main difference is that the, the men are still accumulating maybe 10% more practice hours over time, but that's probably a reflection of the fact that for instance, in terms of the U.S. national team, some of the players that we collected data from 
know, didn't have access to elite training academies at an early age. Whereas I think if you look at it 10 years down the road, the development pathways for, for uh, male and female soccer players will pretty much be the same in terms of their commitment to, to practice and engagement in the sport. Yeah, you know, and I'm very interested, obviously, in understanding that too, just coming from a female athlete background and and understanding, you know, my my experience was swimming with men and women. But mm -hmm. by the time I became a professional triathlete, I couldn't hang with the men, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I trained with women. So it is it's pretty interesting and um, maybe another future <laughs> research topic for you. Let's um let's pivot to talk a little bit about the work you have done with the U.S. ski team. Yes. Um, you have looked at the best skiers in the world and how they've developed to the highest level. I would love to know what you've learned from that as it may apply more directly to Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I can't talk specifically about Steamboat Springs, but we had access to um, around 600 elite skiers from the pyramid system within the U.S. So all of them were at sort of elite skiing academies. Um, some of those academies were in the East Coast, some in the Inner West region, and some on the West Coast. So um, we looked at the developmental pathways. And, you know, as I said, typically engagement two years of age, uh, typically engaged in, in uh, formal coaching from age five, competition at 7.5, uh, non-ski specific training like weight training age 11. Um, Typically, certainly from, let's say, seven years of age through to 17, 18, between 500 and 1,000 hours in ski-specific practice activity during the year. Can I pause? Yep. What if you break down, because we keep talking about all these hours. Sure. How many, if you do 1,000 hours, tell me, like, if by the time you're 18, if you do 10,000 hours of training and you started yes. at five or six, how many hours a week is that? <laughs> um, Somebody listening is like, well, duh, they're doing the math in their head and I can't do it right now. Yes. I mean, for soccer players, it's somewhere in the region of around 10 to 12 hours a week. Got it. Um, but of course, soccer, well, the soccer season in the UK anyway goes on for 40 odd weeks plus mm -hmm. a year. The ski season is, of course, shorter. Yep. So um, it may well be that that is nearer to 20 hours per week per se. Yep. Um, maybe higher in some instances, oh particularly gosh. when you get sort of, uh, when you get to the sort of 16, 17, 18 years of age, then, then it is close to a thousand hours. Yep. So that's, um, 20 hours based on a 50 week training year, but obviously the training year is much shorter than that. So I guess it can be maybe 30 hours in oh some instances. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, so huge, huge investment. Yes. Hence why you need a lot of passion and interest in the sport. Yeah. Thanks for doing the math for me. Yeah. Here. Well, I'm coming back to the original point. Hence why, of course, you know, genes in and of themselves are insufficient. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you're not engaging in the right quantity and of course, quality of practice for the key adaptations to take place, then right. your chances of becoming an elite scare are obviously somewhat, somewhat limited. Uh, but as I said, these skiers generally also participate in a wide range of other sports, probably because of the seasonal nature of mm -hmm. skiing and, and accumulating large amounts of hours. So they're very sports-focused, these athletes by and large. Um, 
so we've also been looking at some of their um, psychological characteristics. I mean, the elite skiers do score higher on psychological characteristics like mental toughness, resilience, grit, achievement, motivation. And, um, you know, so they develop some of those coping skills, perhaps through prolonged engagement in the sport. And some of those psychological characteristics highlight and predict the points that they score within the, the physics system, is it, I believe. Um, so they're obviously quite important. Uh, as I said before, there is a strong relative age effect, strong bias towards selecting athletes born early in the year uh, rather than later in the year. Yeah, so those were some of the findings yeah. that we came out. Hence, as I said, I was surprised actually that in many ways there were a lot of similarities between the elite skiers and the elite uh, soccer players globally. And that's interesting that there's a, that we're surprised by that, but I can understand it because the sports are so different. Mm -hmm. But what it's saying is that what it takes to be a champion athlete, you know, there is a universal thread, which is interesting. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. I mean, I should also say that we had access through a collaboration to um, a sample of over 200 elite Austrian skiers as well. And we were interested, of course, in whether the Austrian skiers started engaging earlier and accumulated more practice over time, maybe because culturally there's a greater specialization towards skiing and arguably because they maybe have snow for a longer period of the year. Uh, but we didn't actually find that. Uh, we actually found that um, uh, actually specifically the female US skiers actually accumulated more hours in practice than their Austrian counterparts. Uh, and, is it bad and the crazy. female skiers generally actually accumulated more um, hours in practice than their male counterparts in the US. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably estimate maybe 10% more. Yeah. Uh, That's a lot, the other way for the soccer data. Yeah. Oh, okay. As I said earlier. Yeah. yeah. Well, so our goal at the Winter Sports Club is to create champions on and off the mountain. Mm -hmm. So how can the things you learn as a champion athlete translate to being a champion human? This is outside of your realm of research, but I'm asking your personal opinion. Yes, I mean, um, you know, and even, even when we go back to our discussion earlier about specialization and diversification, um, and the fact that I indicated that the research on transfer is not that strong, I can certainly see that there is significant scope, for instance, for some of the psychological skills to transfer, you know, interacting, communicating socially with others in a team environment, mental toughness, grit, resilience. I can see that they may well transfer across sports. And I suppose I'm going to argue a similar case here that, that those kinds of uh, psychological characteristics positive characteristics that you develop through sport could equally transfer to both your personal and professional life, I guess, throughout um, adulthood. Well, it's interesting because in the very beginning you said maybe you didn't quite have what it took to be the highest level athlete, but you did to be the highest level researcher. Like your career triggered that. So maybe the things you learned as an athlete were able to really be fully exploited in your career. It's interesting. Yeah, no, no, for sure. But but maybe, you know, the the key factor in all of this and is the fact that 
I think as humans, we demonstrate considerable plasticity and adaptability. And it's, uh, you know, a great characteristic of ours, our ability to um, absorb new knowledge, new information, change our behaviours over time. And, um, and yeah, I'm sure some of, the, some of those experiences garnered through, through sport, uh, both the competitive characteristics and the cooperative characteristics uh, imp- impact positively on, on how we um, build relationships and shape our professional activities over time. So I certainly can't see any negative aspects to engaging in sport. Perfect answer. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the most exciting thing about what you do as a career? Like what keeps you up at night? Um, well, I've always been fascinated with sport, as I said, but on top of that, I'm also equally fascinated about expertise. You know, how do people become skilled across different domains? And um, I remember actually going back to the previous conversation we had that when I played youth international football for Wales and, uh, you know, in the programme for the match, I think my first ever game was England, England v Wales. We actually won 3-2. Anyway, in the programme... You know, we had my name in it. Mark Williams says, wants to be a physical education teacher and travel the world. So to some degree, I've been very fortunate on two fronts. Firstly, uh, I never feel that I've done a day's work in my life because I truly enjoy what I do. And uh, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. And uh, I've been fortunate as well that uh, my career has given me lots of opportunities to travel across the globe and also to live in different countries. Uh, you know, I've lived in the US, I've lived in Canada, I've lived in Australia, and I've traveled pretty much to all corners of the globe. So yes, I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed what I've done. Uh, so ultimately I can't look back too much with regret on the fact that, um, you know, I didn't become a full-time professional athlete for an extended period of time. So, um, Ultimately, though, it's great to be motivated by what you do, isn't it, in terms of giving you the energy to, to get up every morning and, and drive forward. It is. And, you know, your work includes um, one of your more recent books is about how to make decisions. You know, I mean, it's sport is so complex. You know, we're out there using our bodies and learning how to basically be robots, but it's about training our brains to make micro decisions like just on the fly and this is all the work you do which i find so fascinating <laughs> yeah that that was probably that was the area of my phd actually and my phd was in cognitive science and um it's probably the area that remains my most interesting you know how do people certainly in fast ball sports anticipate and make decisions under pressure and i'm obviously transferring some of those concepts and ideas now into into the military so we're doing work with the war fighters you know, looking at how these warfighters um, perceive and make decisions in dangerous intervention situations in combat, how they deal with the stress. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, that's a fascinating area, the area of game intelligence. And uh, even in regards to this point, and to, just to give you this a different angle on this sort of nature-nurture argument again, you know, commentators will often go, the athlete's got great eye or supervision which in, implies that there is some genetic predisposition here. You know, they've got sort of Superman X-ray eyesight. Whereas reality, when you test their visual function, 
there are no differences between elite and sub-elite athletes. So typically the differences result in um, uh, the development of knowledge structures stored in memory through prolonged experience in the sport. You know, this notion of seven and a half thousand hours by the age of 16, that leads to adaptations, plasticity in the human brain. Uh, and of course, what happens then is that elite athletes, uh, they see things differently because they perceive things differently. So again, it's a perceptual cognitive skill rather than a hardware skill. And you know what? They're perceived differently. I will say that one of the biggest things I think sports brings to people is confidence. Mm -hmm. And that when you gain confidence through sport, you walk into a room and, and you can you can have confidence privilege. <laughs> you know, people yes. just look at you and they're like, they must know the answer to whatever they need. They come up to you, they ask directions. I mean, you just become a person who people can tell you are a leader in a different kind of way. Mm. I find that interesting. Yeah, that's a pertinent point. And, and another characteristic, I guess, is in psychological terms is what's called locus of control, in the sense that uh, you as an individual feel more in control of your own destiny. So in the sporting sense, for instance, whether you win or lose is more in your control than in the opponent's control. So long as I uh, perform in the way that I know I can perform, then the, you know, the control of the situation rests with me. So that's something that elite athletes develop as well over time. Oh, I love that. It's like you've created your own momentum roller coaster, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah. in charge of it. Um, we could go on and on and on and on. We've been almost an hour, so we are going to wrap it up. Are you ready to wrap it? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to enjoying some of the hospitality that Steamboat Springs has to offer this evening. Yay! But, uh, well, before you, before you get to enjoy that hospitality, you do have to answer the final question we okay. ask every guest that comes on the show. And that is... a catch somewhere. <laughs> now you're sweating. <laughs> What's the greatest lesson you have learned through sport? Maybe it's that, that issue that we've alluded to a few times in the sense that, um, you know, maybe we have more control over our own destiny than we think we have. And, and maybe, you know, if you, if you have that motivation, then uh, have faith in our ability to adapt and to develop and uh, to become a better person, a better athlete, um, better in your professional domain. You know, I think having that drive and the motivation and the passion to do that is is important. And maybe sport epitomizes that more than anything. You know, these these guys invest such a lot of time and it's such a rocky journey that it's amazing when they do stand there at the podium on the end, lifting the cup or the gold medal. It's uh, I think that's something that has a lot of parallels in many aspects of life. It makes you better. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It makes us all better, perhaps. Awesome, Mark. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's been amazing. My pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Steamboat Springs Winter Sports Club Show presented by Honey Stinger. Check out the club's winter and summer programs at sswsc.org. If you have a special topic or guest you want featured, we'd love to hear from you. Now get out there and support lead or be a champion on or off the mountain. <laughs>